it's a little bit self-promoting, but honestly, people like to hear about the good work that you're doing and even have the opportunity to connect it with something else. Oh, yeah, because we are thinking about this in radiology as well. Maybe, you know, you can collaborate on this. Well, hello, you're back at the Faculty Factory Podcast, and I'm Kim Sabrowski here at Hopkins, and I'm looking at Dr. Ann Brown. Hi, Ann. Hi, Kim. So good to see you. And maybe if you're new to the Faculty Factory Podcast, you don't know that Dr. Ann Brown first recorded an episode on the Faculty Factory back in June of 2019. Hers is episode number 25. Now, Dr. Brown is the Vice Dean for Faculty at Duke University School of Medicine. She's a professor of medicine in endocrine, and she also was the recipient of our AAMC, the Association of American Medical Colleges, GFA, Group on Faculty Affairs, Carol J. Bland Phronesis Award, bestowed upon her by our community for her acting um, on for the welfare of others without thought for herself. So this just kind of tells you the caliber of Dr. Ann Brown and how she has had a lifelong passion for what she does and faculty development largely. She talked in that episode back in um, number 25 about mid-career women's program called ALICE. It's women leaders at Duke. She talked about coaching, professionalism, So welcome back to the podcast. This is a great reunion. Dr. Brown, thanks again so much, Anne, for being here. What else did I miss from the introduction of you? Anything new titles since we talked back in 2019? No new titles. I'm just excited to be here to kind of think about, um, you know, where we've come since June of 19. And of course, we've had a whole pandemic since then. And a lot of us have rethought our career, including me. And so I am excited to kind of share some of my thoughts about as I look back on 30 years of being a faculty member and thinking about faculty development. Um, So I am thinking a lot about what I want to convey to the to the faculty who are listening to this um, and to share some of the thoughts that I've had about that come after, you know, 30 years of working in this field. 30 years. And I don't remember on the last episode, could you briefly walk us back how you got into a vice dean role? Like when did your career go from faculty member to yes. official leader with official title? Yes. Well, Kim, it was probably too early. Um, and I'm not sure I'd recommend this strategy for other people, but it happened right as I got my K award. I got a K-23 and an offer to be part of the dean's office on this in the same year. Mm-hmm. And so um, I had to make a decision and I completed the K, but I decided to go toward uh, leadership in the dean's office because I wanted to focus on faculty and the climate and the environment. And I was really concerned about um, something that I think most faculty may not be thinking about as a primary focus, which is just the environment that we work in. Like, what is this, what is it that makes people successful? What is it that makes people thrive um, in an academic medical environment? And that seemed um, just very interesting to me. And so I decided to to build my career around that. And um, most people I think would probably get a little bit more of their faculty work under their belt, their research um, and, 
their scholarly work before jumping into administration. But my interest has always been on the um, on the environment that we work in and the people who work in the environment. So as as a new K awardee and being invited to share your wisdom in the dean's office, to what do you attribute this insight that you obviously had early in your career about the area, about the field that somebody else obviously saw that you had this interest? Like, what is it you thought, did, what was on your CV that someone said, oh my gosh, we have to have Dr. Brown in the dean's office? Where? Uh, You know, well, I mean, I think that's a really important point. And maybe a point that I would make for junior faculty in, in the audience. A lot of people say, well, how do you get into leadership positions? And I think that, you know, there's this idea that you, you kind of apply for it and you kind of try to make a case for why you would be good at it. And the, the reality for me is that the, the career growth that I've had in this arena is all of, it comes after actually doing the work. So you asked how I got started. I've always been interested in women's health. That led to developing a, a multidisciplinary seminar series on women's health. And that also made me think about women's career development. So I started asking questions, doing focus groups to try to understand how women saw their career trajectories. And that led to their advice in those focus groups to say, well, you need to talk to the men as well, because not only do are we talking, we as women talking about work-life balance and the need to kind of be able to um, do multiple things in our lives in addition to our careers, but the men in our lives are saying the same thing, though they may not be saying it as loudly as we are. So we did focus groups with men as well. And sure enough, they were saying, you know, I don't think I can say this out loud because I, it'll, I'll be penalized as not being serious about my career, but I am also very interested in being a parent and um, having um, a life outside of medicine. Now, this was in the early 2000s. And I think we've gotten a lot more experience with Uh, men being able to speak up and say, no, I'm going to go pick up the kids. I'm going to the soccer game. I'm going to be, I want to be a parent. That's a much more vocal. It's a, it's a, it's a louder voice now than it was 20 years ago, I think. So my trajectory was in being interested in women's health, women's career development, leading to all career development. And it's all based on, on, on listening to what the people in my, or, you know, surrounding area, my, my school um, needed and wanted. And I got invited to do this primarily, you know, in a formal way, primarily because I was already doing it informally. And so I could show that I had, um, you know, I, my instincts were good and that I was doing it based on mm-hmm. information gathered from the environment, not just what I thought needed to happen, but but kind of like a, you know, needs assessment, um, if you will, through focus groups. So you said already doing it. And I think that's really, I want to underline that because you're, um, I think you're right. It's got to be, that's one way of thinking. If we are passionate about something, we see a gap, we see a need, and we feel like that there's um there's a vacuum. Why isn't this being done? Or I I have a, a bead on how I think this could go. I'm just going to start doing it, whatever that it is, it, within bounds, of course. The whole thing of better to ask for forgiveness and permission. So maybe you start doing it informally, like like you said, until somebody says, "Well, yeah, you have 
well, you don't have a title. Well, what makes you think you're qualified to do this? I don't see this on your resume. Ah, but aha, I have been doing this kind of like in, in the background. It's been happening. It's just been this not been formally financed or publicized or it's not on the headline, but we've been kind of beta testing, pilot testing this on our own just because it needed to happen. How many yeah. times I'm thinking here at Hopkins, we gosh, what are we doing? Oh, uh, in our oh, anesthesiology, critical care medicine, Dr. Jenny Lee Summers was describing this virtual exchange program where she, you know, invites speaker faculty members to come to Hopkins virtually and vice versa. They're recorded in that way. It was kind of filling the vacuum of COVID having taken away professional society meetings. So this virtual exchange program, and then lo and behold, she's writing an IR, submitting an IRB for it because we're going to look at the almost hundred you know, visiting professors that we've done and look at the impact on it has it impacted their career and helped them in their home institutions. And then when we're looking at the literature, lo and behold, someone at Hopkins right here in our own home had published a paper on doing virtual <laughs> visiting exchange programs in, in radiology and in neuroradiology. So that was kind of the, oh, see, when things are happening, you don't need, you don't know what you don't know. So yeah. you don't, you just start doing it and then someone will find out you will, prov- you will create opportunities for yourself. And then you're growing that pot by saying, oh my gosh, you're right next door. You said some important things there. I mean, I think that, and I would, I would kind of um, dig into it and say small wins, you know, you're looking for probably smaller wins if you don't have the funding to do it at scale or the institutional support to do it at scale, but, but small wins, but also, um, you know, communicating about it. And that's what you described in your story is that somebody wrote a paper about it and talked about what they, what they're actually doing. And, um, and chances are someone else is thinking about that too. And so this gives it a scholarly voice and it gives it a way to share, you know, to share the wealth, if you will. And so um, I think that it's important to, to look for these ways of, of building, building some small wins to demonstrate your, your competence there, but also demonstrating your impact and, um, and then communicating about it and not necessarily just waiting for somebody to notice. I think that, you know, a lot of people come into this, um, this work of believing that if they work hard and they keep their nose to the grindstone, that they, that their work will be noticed and they'll be rewarded. And the truth is you need to add on to that some communication about what it is that you're doing, um, sending, and it's, it's good news. All these accomplishments are good news and leaders love to hear good news. So send that news upward. It's a little bit self-promoting, but honestly, people like to hear about the good work that you're doing and even have the opportunity to connect it with something else. Oh, yeah, because we are thinking about this in radiology as well. Maybe, you know, you can collaborate on this. Um, I think that that's an important way to start getting, dipping your toe into, let's say, administration or leadership is to, to start looking for something that's coming up from the ground that you see as, as needed. And I felt passionate about this. I'm very passionate about, you know, uh, about women in medicine and, um, and kind of underrepresented voices um, being, having a chance to, to speak up. Um, and so it was moving to me. It was important to me too, personally. And um, and so that's made for a really um, happy career for me because I've always felt connected to something that was really important to me. And that's another thing that I hope 
that junior faculty will start to think about is what's really important to you. It's easy to get wrapped up into your mentor's work um, and and um, to um, to kind of ha- have your nose to the grindstone to, to be thinking about accomplishments. And that's all important. It's also really important to check in with yourself about how important is this work to me? What difference do I want to make? What impact do I want to make? And that voice, that need for impact com- becomes louder as we get um, as we get um, more senior in our faculty positions. And we learn this from focus groups with senior women. Once you prove your competence and you've, you know, you've got your, um, you've established that you can take care of patients, you can do your research, you can educate, um, people start to begin thinking, okay, what else? Where do I want to take risks? Where do I want my impact to be? And so beginning to having that North Star early on, um, you know, knowing who your, you know, your authentic leadership voice uh, is, what that voice is, what it's saying to you, who you are what really makes you um, really sing, um, that is important to t- check into, check in with every once in a while and to let that be a guiding, a, a guiding star. What can we say to early career faculty members, mid-career faculty members who are having a hard time hearing that voice? You know, I'm thinking of uh, faculty members who, you know, we, we all mentor and coach and sponsor and just meet with so many faculty members and then the no, what they're hearing is there's so much noise that is I feel it like, I feel like it must be a constant litany of to-do lists I, I must generate more um, RVUs I must close my encounters I must write another grant I must write some papers I gotta get that IRB in I've got to talk to ORA about that post awards administration I've got to get beyond that Etc. Cetera, Etc. Cetera. So many things. And by the way, oh, I do have a family and a life, and I'd like to maybe eat sometime this week. And then, isn't it kind of? Oh, does it? Doesn't it seem kind of selfish when you think? But oh, what is my? You know, what is my voice? Sell? What? Are, what makes my heart sing? <laughs> How do we remind faculty members who are try, who are drowning uh, that that voice? You know, how do we? Help them hear the voice. You know, do you hear them? Yeah, I, I know. I know what you're talking about. It does, you know, it does sound like what I'm talking about is kind of a luxury. Um, and, um, and you know, the truth is that at certain times in your life, um, you know, you make a, you make a choice and you need to push forward to get that, um, to get accomplished what you need to get accomplished. And you need to have, um, your head down and just keep pulling the plow forward. Um, and the way I think we can be helpful um, is is not to add on to that and say, oh, and by the way, you need to think about your authentic self. But I think it is a couple of things. One, I hope that we can spend some time we, that we can, as leaders and mentors and coaches is adopt a more coach-like approach to things. And I say that because, um, you know, leading often you feel like, oh, I have a mantle of leadership. I need to be able to tell people what the right way to do things is. As a mentor, you might feel like, you know, you need to um, help somebody, you, you know, the route, you know, the ladder, and you need to, you need to help them climb that ladder. And it's something that you know a lot about. And so you're sharing your expertise. And then I like 
coaching as a model, and this is something I've gotten a lot more interested in as, um, and I think many people have gotten more interested in um, over the past several years. And that is to, to simply understand that the, the wisdom is in the person. Um, and the, uh, and the, the, the best thing that we can do is to ask probing questions and listen and not judge, um, but give them a chance to listen to themselves and to, in that process, kind of hear that that voice that may be drowned out by the the shouting of the 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 tyranny of the urgent. And so, I'm liking the idea of building coaching uh, coaching approaches into how we interact with each other to stop feeling like we need to know the answer, but to um, ask the right questions to help people understand their priorities. And it's not so that they can have more priorities, but so that they can have a moment in time to really hear themselves talk about um, what they're aiming for um, and what's important to them. And I think that's a very, very powerful model that I hope that we can use more of all of us as we go forward and support leaders and support our junior faculty, our mid-career faculty, um, you know, you know, I think it's a, a great tool for, for all of us and a, a kind tool. Well, I really appreciate that sensibility, Anne. I like the coach approach of being curious and asking curious questions. And you're right, coaching is all the rage now. And, and what, what I like about you know, your thought process is that rec- we recognize that we're all in different seasons of our life and that we all understand Um, that we're not so flippant to say that, like you said, let's just kind of meditate and um, be in this lovely space and just think about our lives, recognizing that while the house is burning down, you're not going to stop and and do this. So when there are priorities, we all know this, that it's going to be all hands on deck. We're taking care of COVID or all hands on deck. We're writing that grant. It has to be submitted tomorrow. Or fill in the blank. Uh, the kids have three soccer tournaments. It's going to be craziness. So we all know when we have to push and that there are seasons in our life. Nothing is static. It's fluid. But what I like about your reminder of this coach approach is that knowing that our seasons will change, that we just be mindful of and maybe plunk into our calendars here and there periodically with some kind of regularity to actually have a a time to think about these things or because minimally, right, we're a coach of one. Minimally, we can coach ourselves and do a kind of a gut check of every other month or every six months, put in my calendar, as my colleague, Rachel Levine, puts down weekly deep thinking. And I'm like, what do you do during that time? She's like, I think deeply, (laughs) deep thinking. So like you could just say coaching session and it could be as informal and low prep as just a 20 minute segment where you're like, what am I feeling right now? Where am I deriving joy? Where am I finding fulfillment and satisfaction? What are my topmost values? Just that kind of little bit of, of checking in. No, this is a crazy time of life. I'm not, I expected that the next three years is going to be nothing but blood, sweat, and tears. That's just, I've agreed, I've signed on for this, this is what I'm doing. And then, I'm going to do the next thing, but I like. Yeah, I think, uh, and I would, 
I'm sorry to interrupt, I, but you're just making me think, you know, I think one of the things that junior faculty have talked about the most in response to coaching, and we have built it into the, like the Birch program and to the fund to retain clinical scientists, these, these internal grant programs for junior faculty. And so coaching starts very early. It's not just executive coaching, it's at coaching in, at, uh, at the very earliest stages of a career. And, and one of the things that they valued the most is just help with priority setting, because it is very difficult to sit back and say, okay, well, let me list my priorities. Whenever I try to do that, I just get overwhelmed with every single one of them. Exactly. Yeah. So, um, so the, the coaching process has been enormously helpful for people who are overwhelmed and need help really understand, listening to themselves about their, their, what, where their priorities are at the moment, even if it's just for this weekend or this afternoon, um, and, and so, you know, it's a, it's a, um, I like to think of it as not adding on, but as, as, you know, providing some kind of support for somebody to, to clear their, 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 um, their steps a little bit, their way forward. Um, you know, I kind of think of career development. This is a, not my, um, image, but um, as a lattice, you know, this has been, this has been, it's not a ladder, but it's a lattice where you're, you know, you might climb over this way and up this way, or maybe it's maybe rock climbers who use the walls will have a good feel for this image of a career development as being, you know, sort of off to one side and over to this side and ultimately, hopefully upward. And so part of, I think that the 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 job of a faculty member is to be conscious of building that lattice framework as you go through faculty development, through coaching conversations, through investing in yourself to build the scaffolding, the lattice so that you can you can you have a lot of places to hang on to and 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 rise. Mm. Um, and Yes, that is an additional responsibility, but my hope is that it feels like an energizing response, you know, responsibility because you get something immediate from it as a faculty member. It's not more delayed gratification. It's, it feels more immediate, I think, um, to think about things like, you know, um, uh, you know, emotional intelligence and how to build your emotional intelligence or what your Myers-Briggs is and how that plays out in your, in your life. Um, and, um, to think about conflict management. Um, how do I develop my skills in difficult conversations, for instance? Hopefully those feel immediately helpful and are that uh, you sort of building the handholds that you can use to climb the, the, the lattice. Well, thank you for painting that picture. That I, I like that idea of different handholds and footholds that right when you think you're going to lose your grip, you can just kind of a subtle shift in attention and a little move and you can put your foot or your hand on something else for the moment, you know, not necessarily meant to be hanging there forever, but for the moment to gain, to regain your energy, your, um, your focus. And I like the idea of I belayer, I think it's called a belayer or someone at the bottom who's got the rope who's going to make yeah. sure, you know, we got yeah. you. You're not going to, you, if you crash, don't worry about it. Um, we're going to catch you. There's, there's a net yeah. built there, but I, I appreciate you mentioning faculty development because I think, you know, as leaders, as the vice dean for faculty at Duke um, and doing this, as you said, for 30 years, clearly your head is at that level of organizational culture in the environment and, and deans and finances and priorities. 
And so you, you have that sense of that sensibility. And as faculty members, as you just clearly gave some good examples, where we have so many competing priorities, it's sometimes hard to prioritize ourselves. You know, as Covey's important, not urgent kind of that, that four, two by two matrix. And we're and some some of us may think that I, I don't have time for those things. Almost like people say, well, I don't have time to eat a healthy diet. I don't have time to exercise. I don't have time for faculty development. I don't have time for these things without recognize, or I don't have time to train my new employees. I don't have that kind of time. And so if you don't invest in that time up front, oftentimes on the tail end, your body will suffer, your health will suffer, your employees will turn over, you won't get the quality of work, and you may not achieve your goals because you didn't build in the time. Because we can always say there's no time for things, right? So I appreciate the levels of that. You know, and I think that this is where I think leaders are so important. I think uh, leaders need to speak up and to say, you know, your health, your mental health, um, your attention to burnout, all those things matter. So, you know, I want, I, and, and and to establish some norms for your group that are healthier, like maybe it's emails, um, it's a note at the end. I love this. This um, came in an email to me. I may be writing this on the weekend or after hours, but the, the, I do not expect a response during the, that time frame. You know, sort of giving permission um, that you don't have to answer. I don't expect an answer right away. Or maybe saying that to your team, your lab team, for instance, you know, I will text you if it's urgent, but otherwise, uh, you know, if I send you something, it, I don't expect a response on the weekend. That's an example of how as a, a leader might set the tone um, for, um, for um, for for kind of sustenance being built into the to right. the um, the work world, and I think that COVID has given us an appreciation for um, our limits mm-hmm. um, and for our own our own emotional pain as providers around the grief of losing patients. Um, the 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 hardship of taking care of children at home who can't go to school because of covid you know i think it's pushed us up against our limits mm-hmm. uh, for many people and it's different for for different people and not, not everybody has had this experience but i hope that leaders have gotten a sense that we're we're not infinite in, in as human beings in what we can give to to work and that there has to be some uh, you know, the, the burnout, the sort of the data about burnout is very alarming with the majority of physicians and providers being, um, being having a high degree of burnout, for instance, that's just unacceptable. And hopefully leaders are kind of are, are also coming to understand the importance of the, the environment and the people in the environment. And, you know, I don't need to be saying that they that, that leaders haven't understood that, but I think that we operate in a meritocracy where we are constantly trying to demonstrate our merit and we're realizing the limits of, of that um, and that there are other things besides what we produce that are important to this work, this workplace. And when you, when you talk about the, the meritocracy and, you know, you're so right, you just, you nailed this 
this um, orientation we have and how we are so socialized in academic medicine to to be selfless and to work so hard and to um, be polite and respectful and just kind of deal deal with uh, fill in the blank, lack of pay, lack of resources, lack of um, support, whatever, moral support. How do, um, how, what, what do we tell the faculty member? What does, what can the faculty member, his or herself, do to if, if they if she or he is working in a culture or an institution where the leaders do not espouse that mentality of, of valuing the employees as humans and, and with a finite sense of, of, of life, uh, how can we create that safe space ourselves? You know, we talked about the coach, the coaching model, and I'm coaching at least maybe coaching myself. Can we do anything to vaccinate ourselves or our lab, our section, our division, our unit? How do we create that, um, even if it's in not in the bigger environment? Do you have a sense? Well, of I think, yeah, I mean, I think you're talking about the truth about academic health centers is that it's not one culture. You know, it's we we all work within a microculture or a couple different microcultures. So I may have my office group um, and we operate in one way. I may have my dean's group and we operate in another way. And so I, I think that, I don't know that there's a great answer to your question other than to try to use your power where, you know, and everybody has some degree of power in this environment. Um, and your leadership and every, but particularly faculty, every faculty member, no matter what your rank, has a leadership role, whether it's round with the, the team you're rounding with or the lab that you're running or the research group that you're heading. I think it's to bring that sensibility to that microclimate, to that team that you're working with um, and to talk about it to ask, how can we support each other? How can we be a positive work? What's important to you about this, this work environment? Um, and you know, if we can't do it ourselves, because a lot of us have grown up in the achievement-oriented, uh, with the achievement-oriented mindset. And so it's really hard for us to say, oh, you know, it feels like kumbaya, you know, and it doesn't feel like we're good at it. So it feels a little awkward to find those people who are good at it and empower them and to say, um, I know you have a superpower that I don't have. And so I'm going to, I'm going to ask you to bring that here. Um, and I say this because um, I, th this has happened to me. I have an employee who I've worked with for 25 years now. Um, I hired her right out of, um, uh, her undergraduate, uh, after she got an undergraduate degree, and she's been with me ever since. And she has brought that to my, that sort of emotional intelligence to my team. And I have to say that I wasn't that person, <laughs> um, you know, who could lead a team with, with emotional intelligence. And, uh, you know, when I was a, a, you know, junior faculty member, because I was, caught up in needing to make this faculty uh, job a, a success and looking around for like, what's the most important thing to do and how can I, how can I do this and not look like I'm falling apart or falling down on the job. And 
the smartest thing I ever did was listen to her mm-hmm. about what's important in terms of how we treat each other our team in our team. Um, and, um, and it's taken, you know, it's, it's, it is something that she continues to bring and I continue to learn from um, over time. And so recognizing what your superpowers are and what you don't have and trying to find that superpower in somebody else. And I think this is the heart of our, of diversity as well, is that, that it's, that's one kind of diversity. Um, But it is really a lesson for me in how powerful it is in making me better, making our work better, making our environment better. And so I think that that is a concept that I hope people are, are hearing now that diversity is, is what drives our excellence and it's diversity in lots of different arenas. Um, and that you don't have to be the, the, the person who knows the most about everything to be, um, in fact, you, you, you can't. Um, and so don't put that pressure on yourself. Oh. You know, let, let you let yourself be led by somebody who's who's got that skill that you can recognize as necessary um, for the team, and but you can't bring it. Oh, and 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 that is that is profound. What you just said there, that lesson, the humility of recognizing our blind spots as a leader. What where are my weaknesses, and where are your strengths? Where are your superpowers? And I love how you said that because. The idea that as leaders, we should not expect ourselves and we should know that others don't expect us to be the keepers of all truth and know the answers for everything. And I'm thinking probably as, and I'm not a clinician, I don't see patients, but I'm imagining that that's the kind of little bit of a um, schizophrenic tendency that if as a caregiver, if you're in a examination room with patients and families, and they look to you and say, Dr. Brown, what should we do? What should I do right now? And they're looking at you saying, give me the answer. And so that kind of socialization to one must know the answer, name all the bones, name all the organ systems, name all the you know lymphocytes and all the T-cells and helpers. You should know these things. But as a leader, it's a different mindset. It's a recognition. I don't know all the answers. And so I love how you said creating this microculture, presenting with, I don't know all the answers here. How can I help you? What can I do for you? What can we, what should we do? So you empower the team members recognizing and you're the person who's really great at, you know, fixing problems, you know, and, and Joe, you're the one who's the most visual person. It immediately, as you said, also, it lightens the burden, like our shoulders kind of as a leader. I, when I finally realized, Kim, I don't have to go and dig into the literature and start all of a sudden be the expert in this stuff. There are people out there who get paid to do this, who love to do it. So simply, you know, say, I I need you. You are important. What you know and do and feel and you are vital. I need you. I don't know how to do this. That created such opportunity for others to step up and be a leader in this area, this section, this component, this meeting. And it also allowed me to sit down and relax and learn and not be 
the keeper of all truth and running around wearing myself out. So it really was a winning moment. So I'm so glad that you brought that up of recognizing that as a leader, we're not to know all the answers for everything and how you dovetail that so nicely into diversity in its truest sense of all the diversity manifested by age, level, rank, thought, and um, ability, strengths. I think it's just wonderful. It's a great reminder. I, well, I think you had so many good points there. And, you know, I think that, that, um, that humility is one, you know, sort of understanding that you, you don't, you, you have a worldview and you may think it's pretty obvious that your worldview is, you know, is, is right because you, but, but because it's your worldview, but, but I think that we've been learning, for instance, in, in listening more closely to our black and brown fact colleagues, um, that there's a whole experience out there that, that is, is silent for many of us and that we need to hear to really have a greater understanding of how the world works and how we can, imp- and how we can, um, and how, you know, honestly, many of us are benefiting from the silence of others. And, and so, so I want to, to say that, that I think it's important to bring the attitude that we don't have all the answers and to recognize that it is very different from what we are trained to mm-hmm to have, which is to, you know, from the time we're in kindergarten to have the right answers. I mean, that's what tests are. There's a right answer and a wrong answer. And, um, and, and, and we, it's a real hard transition to go from the person who needs to have all the answers to the person who is listening and, and may have some ideas, but may but you can't possibly know the right idea for that person. And that goes with our in our interactions with our peers in terms of what they need to develop and what their priorities should be. It also rings very true with patient care. I my clinical realm is in diabetes management, diabetes prevention, uh, management of women with polycystic ovary syndrome. And I and now the the lament that I have is that I didn't that I spent too much time trying to tell people where their sugars needed to be, how to get their sugars there, what they needed to eat, because that's what I was trained to do. But that, to me, that that is about a third, maybe a, a quarter of what needs to happen in a visit with somebody with a life, with a condition that's so influenced by lifestyle. I should have been taking some of the pressure off of myself and said, what's important to you? What's your most important you know, um, priority right now? And how can we work toward that? Um, because otherwise it's just a series of mismatched conversations here. You need to do this. And the person like, yeah, well, I'm not going to say it, but I, I'm not, I'm going to, you know, that's not what's important to me right now. Um, so I think that I, I have really learned a lot from my patients and from faculty, the faculty development work I've done and listening to faculty. And what I would like to say now is that, that yes, you need to become an expert in your field. You need to understand your field. Um, But that beyond that, it's much more powerful to, um, to refrain from thinking that you have the right answer or that you know enough to give that person the right answer and to really stop giving advice 
And this comes out of my interest in coaching and learning about how to be coach-like. And, you know, one of the cardinal sins is giving advice. Mm. (laughs) Oh, gosh. Um, and so I hope that we can all, you know, sort of relieve ourselves of that obligation um, to, in many situations, have the right answer, give the right advice, um, because that is a pressure, that is a, a weight, that is a stressor. And the truth is that the person who is who you're talking to probably knows more about their situation than you can possibly ever know. Mm. And we'll know more about what's important to them if given the chance to to lift that up. Um, and that's just a more interesting way, I think, of being in the in the world. Wow, so empowering. I love it, and very, very cur- that curiosity, curious mm-hmm. versus judgmental. Wow, this has been so great. Stop giving advice. I just I wrote that down, and I want to make sure that we all. Um, Reflect on that. Stop giving advice. Assume a coach-like mentality. Think about diversity in all of its shades and colors and facets and, and domains. And I also love what you said. Gosh, looking back on life, a series of mismatched conversations. Isn't that like the, the main thrust of our, our humans getting together? The mismatched conversations. I thought we were talking about A. Come to find out we were talking about B. Uh, so, so valuable how flipping the script on a patient encounter. Tell me, you know, what, what is important to you right now? Maybe not be the, the diabetes, maybe the fact that you know, mom is, is on end stage of her life and you've got a child who's struggling in school and your relationship is falling apart and other things are, are taught, taking priority. So for someone to then cram advice down your throat is not only mismatching, but it's, it's, it's making, it's missing the whole connection of human to human, right? It's just fundamentally yeah. off the mark. <laughs> yeah, and I, I think, I think, you know, we have an obligation to help people focus on whatever the disease or disorder they're coming to see us for as physicians or as providers. Um, but it, we, I, I've come to appreciate the importance of uh, trying to understand what the most you know, important thing to that person is and how can I tailor our conversation to, to help them meet that health goal. Right. Um, and so I don't want to say that no, <laughs> we have to think session. about the sugars at all, but, um, but it's, but it is, a, it, and I, and I just want to emphasize that I think that it's, it's a much more joyful conversation than one where you're like, no, Kim, you, I know right. your fingers hurt, but you, you know, but this is important. Right, <laughs> you right. have to do it five times a day. Right. Yeah. That's a hard conversation. That's a way, that's a, like a, a pressured conversation. Like, well, what can you do? Right. You know, what, what would be something that you could do um, to, you know, and, and how could you use that information to help you? That's, that's just, it takes a lot of pressure off of me and engages them. And so it's a way of connecting, right? Like you're saying. It's so empowering, empowering. Dr. Ann Brown, Vice Dean for Faculty, Professor of Medicine, Duke University School of Medicine. You can see why she has spent three decades doing what she's doing and I assume that if you are interested in uh, being coached, that Dr. Brown would be 
uh, uh, someone to whom you might reach out. Is it, am I right there? Ann.brown at Duke EDU. Uh, well, I, that is part, that's another conversation, but I'm definitely looking at coaching as the encore career. Like what comes next after my retirement, you know, maybe it'll include some coaching. All right, folks, there you, there you heard it. Dr. Ann Brown, you could get a hold of her at Ann, A-N-N dot Brown at duke.edu. Dr. Brown, thank you so much as usual for contributing and being here in the Faculty Factory podcast once again. You're wonderful and your advice is sage. Thank you. Oh, this is just a wonderful service that you're doing for all of us, Kim. Thanks so much. Thank you. See you next time on the podcast. Hello, Faculty Factory listeners. It's your friendly podcast producer here, Casey Callanan. Just to remind you, if you didn't already know it, the Faculty Factory is now offering coaching. You can learn more by visiting facultyfactory.org coaching. Faculty Factory Coaching is about building a thriving clinical, educational, and research career to be successful beyond all your expectations. Most of all, it's about living a joy-filled life. To learn more about Faculty Factory Coaching, drop us a line over at facultyfactory.org front slash coaching, and you can learn more there. Thanks for tuning in to Faculty Factory Podcast. The mission of the Faculty Factory is to build and support a community of leaders in faculty development who share tools, resources, wisdom, and encouragement in service to our faculty members, schools, and institutions. We encourage you to go to facultyfactory.org to find out more, get in touch with me, ask me any questions. Maybe you want to be interviewed on the podcast. Thanks for tuning in to Faculty Factory Podcast. We'll see you next time. The Faculty Factory Podcast and website is sponsored by the Johns Hopkins University School of Medicine Office of Faculty. For more information, visit facultyfactory.org.